This week's episode, we're going to be talking about some difficult topics. With a series of events surrounding the killing of George Floyd that have occurred over the past few weeks, we felt it was important to discuss this topic. We'd like to say right off the bat that we are three white men. We cannot even pretend to understand what it is like to be black in this country. Because we don't share that perspective, we choose to leave the complex discussions involving race and justice to others who do have that perspective. Instead, we are going to address it as best we can based on our lens of the 2020 American general election and what these events mean for the parties. Hello, listeners. You're listening to BAM Political Talk with Bob, Albert, and Matt. I'm your host, Matt Brown. I have with me here Albert Kramer. Hello. And Bob LaBeouf. Hello. Before we delve into the debate section of the evening, I'd first like to go through a timeline of events. Though there have been many other killings by police that have led to protests, the most recent killing was of George Floyd on Monday, May 25th in Minneapolis. On Tuesday, May 26th, four officers were fired following the release of video footage showing Officer Derek Chauvin kneeling on the neck of George Floyd for nine minutes. On the 27th, protests in Minneapolis and other cities erupted, some peaceful, some violent. On the 28th, protesters torched the Minneapolis police station. There are protests in New York, Denver, Los Angeles. The Minnesota governor activates the National Guard. On Friday the 29th, Officer Derek Chauvin was arrested, charged. Additional protests in Washington, D.C., becoming incredibly heated to the point where Trump chooses to head to a bunker underneath the White House. The perimeter around the White House has expanded. Monday, June 1st, Trump clears a route to St. John's Episcopal Church with federal law enforcement using pepper balls and flashbang grenades. Defense Secretary Mark Esper and the Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman Mark Milley publicly disapprove after having attended that photo op. Trump calls the governors on a phone call and urges them to dominate violent protesters, says if they can't, he will, using the army if necessary. Most recently, the Minneapolis City Council has announced plans to disband police against the mayor's wishes 9 to 3, and the latest in a series of calls to defund the police. Many call to defund the police, many are calling for national legislation. In the House and Senate, Democrats have put forward the Justice and Policing Act of 2020, which calls for restraints on federal police, including dash cams, body cams, a ban on no-knock warrants, like the one that killed Breonna Taylor, on March 13th, and ban chokeholds. This bill would also make it easier to hold police accountable in times that they violate civil rights. It would also withhold federal funds from local police for not doing similar reforms to the ones listed in the bill. This and other bills are currently being debated, including one involving qualified immunity. Trump has taken the stance of being a law and order president, posing himself as the commander in chief who will protect the American people from violent looters. 
Biden has taken a different stance. Biden has said, I won't traffic in fear and division, has claimed that Trump is fanning the flames of hate, and has said, protesting such brutality is right and necessary. It's an utterly American response, but burning down communities and needless violence is not. Bob, my first question goes to you. Do you believe we're living history right now? Yeah, Matt, I really think we are. We're still in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. And on on uh, Monday, May 25th, as you mentioned in your intro, we saw the footage, the raw footage of the killing of George Floyd by, Derek, by Officer Derek Chauvin. And years of footage released by people on the scene of police brutality, particularly towards African-American males, has really come to the surface and people have had enough. I really think that right now we had just come out of a period where people had been living in their homes for three months straight and and are really trying to get out there and then saw that even with a global pandemic going on, police brutality is still alive and well and people were naturally pissed off and you saw these protests start. And more to the point, these protests are much larger than they were in the past. Large scale, longer lasting, multiple days. So it really, to me, feels different this time. From my perspective, at least where I'm sitting, it seems like people are protesting relatively generally peacefully. The vast majority of the protesters appear to be peaceful and their points are are getting across. There is legislation in the pipeline, as you've mentioned. It has made its way into the national debate with President Trump and Vice President Joe Biden vying for the President of the United States. So we're now really seeing a point where all this anger has come to a head during a time where Americans already had particularly short fuses after living um, in our homes for the last few months. And people are out there rightly protesting um, a police culture that has sort of grown to being more violent since arguably um, the beginning of the century. Albert, what do you think? Do you think this is a historical time we're living in? Absolutely. Um, I I think that uh, 10 years from now, we'll look back at the the killing of George Floyd, the the tragic killing of George Floyd as a, a watershed moment in American history um, and in you know civil the civil rights movement that continues to this day, um, I, I think what makes this this period so unique is that I think America, Black America, White America, every every part of America, old and young, now recognizes that there's a problem in this country, and I think that it's taken something so uniquely horrible, but also sort of completely undeniable and I think we've all watched that that uh, that video and it's it's you know we there's no there's no there's no excuse any any longer and I think to what Bob was saying before that that has really driven the the outrage and I think it's going to to change things um, it's going to have an impact on the election it's going to have an impact on hopefully uh, race relations in America uh, for years to come and, and for the better yeah, I think that's very true. I think we're in a watershed moment here. I think that George Floyd is going to be remembered for a long time for this. These protests, in my opinion, have been exacerbated by a few different things. First off, I think the video being so graphic and so clear was a very large portion of 
causing this uprising, this frustration, this anger that folks feel. I also think that the fact that people have been cooped up for three months played a large role in this. Not obviously starting it, but fanning the flames, making this a larger, a larger issue, making this something that has more fuel involved. I think people are frustrated with the government. This is a chance to channel that anger. And, and Matt, if I can just add, I think you're absolutely right, and rightfully so, because let's not forget that the coronavirus pandemic has hit black and brown communities especially hard. That's a really good point. Uh, they, in particular, have reason to be furious, absolutely furious with our government right now. Unemployment is another thing that's strengthening these, these protests. There are so many people out of work. I think last I heard it was 13%, 14% uh, for the month of May. Those people have extra time in their hands, where in a normal time period, there would be people who want to join the protests but can't. This is a moment where people are more able to, more able to put themselves out there because they're not going to lose their job for this because they've already lost their job. I'd like to change the conversation a little bit now. I want to talk about the protests' relation to the November election. Bob, what do you think Trump's reaction to the killing of George Floyd reveals about his strategy for November? Yeah, so I think he's continuing to go with the strategy that we saw in 2016, which is being all about that base, about that base, no moderates. <laughs> and uh, he is... He is trying to stoke energy in the states that allowed him to carry the 2016 election. He was recently down in Jacksonville, Florida, I think either today or early this afternoon or, or, or yesterday. He was down in Jacksonville, Florida, and um, he's likely to continue the tour around the country um, trying to get that base energized. Law and order is a big part of that base. So as you mentioned previously, being that law and order candidate, um, his reactions are continuing, in my opinion, to not to be prone to a president who has diplomatic experience like any of the previous presidents who have who know how to use rhetoric to unite people and use positive rhetoric to come up with a a message of we we are hearing you. We are listening. Please keep these protests peaceful and we'll work with you. Something like that other than we're going to come in and, and dominate, which obviously has connotations from the earlier civil rights movement in which... Sorry, I would argue that this is exactly the... I mean, it's not a diplomatic move that Trump is making by not giving a unifying message, but it's definitely a move he could take for November, right? I don't, I don't think that this is necessarily a bad move on his part if he's just taking oh, politically? actions to win the election. Yeah, politically, no. I mean, it, it might help him. But at this point, I mean, that strategy has worked before. I really think that this is a different animal. 2020 is a very different animal because people have seen the president's policy. A lot of middle class up to the very rich to varying degrees were relatively happy with the tax policy. But for the most part, now these current events are going to be on people's minds. And 
there are a lot of Americans right now who are being pretty quiet about these protests um, and just watching it develop that are going to see this rhetoric and likely be turned off by it because on their front on the front of their minds in November is going to be how did he respond to these two public crises and you know being who he is and being divisive and even among his supporters reporting that they don't always agree with his methods i think it's going to be an uphill battle for him i don't think he's going to get the middle of the road independent voters who voted for barack obama twice in the midwest with rhetoric like that albert uh, i have the same question for you what do you think trump's reaction to the killing of george floyd reveals about his november strategy yeah, so I view things a little differently than Bob. So for, first and foremost, I think it reveals that he doesn't have a strategy. I think that Trump has been really grasping. Uh, first, it was try to try to pretend coronavirus doesn't exist. Then it was actually I did a great job. Then it was don't worry about it. Let's get the economy open. And now this is the new the new topic of the of the of the month. And, you know, it's, it's to me, smacks of, of desperation, and rightfully so. If you look at the poll numbers, I mean, to say that, you know, what he's doing is potentially helping his candidacy, you know, he was losing, this is according to the New York Times, head-to-head -head against Joe Biden, March and April, losing by six points. In May and June, he's now losing by 10 points. You have people in, you know, over over 70 percent, this is according to a Wall Street Journal poll, you know, over 70 percent of Americans are, you know, more concerned about the death of George Floyd and police conduct than they are of uh, protests. So I, I think that this is Trump really misreading the political pulse of, of America. And I think that, you know, Bob, you alluded to the sort of law, law and order, and uh, I was, was listening to a, a podcast earlier, I cannot remember exactly what, but it was talking about, you know, shades of Richard Nixon. And I think the comparison is really interesting, but for a way that maybe Trump doesn't realize in that you can run as the law and order president when you're an outsider trying to be president. But, and when Richard Nixon did that in 1968, he was very effective. When he tried to do it again in 1970, when all those race riots were happening on his watch during the midterm elections, the Republicans got crushed. And so I wonder if, if that's the more apt analogy that is sort of, uh, you can't, you can't uh, pull off the same trick twice. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, if you're not in power and the world is burning, then you can say, hey, elect me, I'll do whatever it takes to get the world under control again. But as soon as you're in there and the world's burning and you take these actions, People are going to look at you scared. People are going to go, oh my God, this guy is crazy. Um, so I think you, I think it's a lot easier to be taking on the law and order stance from outside. That's a really good point, Albert. And, and, and Matt, that's not to say that I think this is some tremendous opportunity for Joe Biden, right? I mean, on, on, on paper, he's up by 10 points, but he's also in a very difficult situation he has to balance a, an electorate, a Democratic electorate, that has a very, uh, you have everyone from people, people in the streets to sort of the more swing vote moderates or, or more, more, uh, more moderate Democrats. So it's not that he has a, a unified platform here, and he could, he could respond to this in a way that potentially 
disenchants both both sides. And so I think Biden is obviously if I had to choose between being in Biden shoes or Trump shoes, I'd pick Biden's. But I don't necessarily think that he has the uh, the easiest route uh, to navigate here politically. And I'll be very interested to see how he responds uh, in the coming days and weeks. Bob, do you see this as an opportunity for Biden? Yeah, I mean, I do see it as an opportunity, but will Biden in his campaign seize that opportunity? Of that, I have my doubts. It is certainly an opportunity to really all Biden has to say is um, is just offer a, count, a countering viewpoint, offer unite uniting rhetoric, start acting like the president right now, saying, if I were president, I would do X, Y, Z, be a lot more vocal on this issue, which I do think the Biden strategy of being pretty quiet during the pandemic before these uh, before these protests started happening was a sound one. But now that these have happened, he's going to be hitting the ground with an opportunity, if elected, to start working with both chambers of Congress to craft and approve of legislation to address the issues that people are protesting. So he needs to start acting like the president right now. And choosing his VP candidate a little bit earlier than he potentially wanted to in the past, I think might also be a good move. But due to the vetting process and just that process being incredibly political, I don't see that happening. But we have talked on the show before about how important the Biden VP, VP pick is going to be. So, yes, I do see this as an opportunity for him, but I have my doubts that he and his campaign will seize it correctly. Albert, surprise question. Ooh. Do you think that Biden's decision to take a stance against defunding police is the right move on his part? How should he handle this situation? Yeah, I mean, I think this is an example of where he has to balance a lot of different interests, right? So I, I think it is the right move because ultimately, look, the, the reason why Joe Biden is the Democratic candidate is not because he was the sexiest choice. It's because people perceived him as the most electable. He was the one that people thought could beat Trump. And that's the response of somebody who is trying to uh, attract the, the, the broadest coalition. And so I think where, where Biden, Biden rightfully is going to have to be supportive of the essence sort of the feeling and the passion and the rightful anger behind a statement like defund or abolish the police, but also then has to make sure that he doesn't scare off, right? We've talked in previous shows about how suddenly uh, he's a, he might be adopting Elizabeth Warren's economic plank, so why make her your VP, right? He has to do that in a way that doesn't scare people off. This is This is something where he has to balance where I, I think he will be able to balance. And what makes it easier is that he can just say less. I think he can, whereas Trump, I think, has to do more. I think Biden can let this play out. Time is on his side a lot more and he can choose, choose his appearances and how he wants to weigh in. But I think it's going to be difficult for him. All right. Do you guys think that this is a bipartisan moment? where both parties are going to be incentivized or forced to pass meaningful reform? Or is it not possible in the middle of a general election? Bob, what do you think? 
Um, yeah, so I think we've already seen uh, some bipartisan legis legislation being proposed that, have, that has come out of this. Um, Representative um, Justin, Justin Amash, formerly Republican of Michigan, now independent libertarian leaning from Michigan, um, has come out in support of uh, legislation with Congresswoman Ayanna Presley from Massachusetts uh, to end qualified immunity in the House. There's also a Senate version as well. So I do think it's, it's a good opportunity. I fear, though, that we're going to be seeing an increasing headwind because a lot of people want to weigh in on these protests, but I have a suspicion that people feel that if I if I am going to come out and publicly attend these protests, I need to believe in their cause and their solutions, and I don't know if I'm there yet. So I think there's a lot of that mentality that's sort of boiling up in a lot of our representatives on both sides of the aisle who don't really know how to handle it or respond yet and are just watching. So I think it is an opportunity. Um, I do think, though, that we are still very incredibly divided as a country, and especially uh, the makeup of the Senate and the and how the Senate has re, has acted under Republican leadership has been sort of averse to um, has been averse to large sweeping um, laws laws being passed during its time. So I think that there are some headwinds, but I do think it could be an opportunity where we will see some bipartisanship. 99.9% of people who who know of George Floyd, which is probably the entire country right now, agree that that was, a, at the very least, a brutal representation of police misconduct that needs to be addressed. So there's a massive opportunity to do so. I just hope that people are going to listen to the protesters and then share their voices after they watch for a little bit and then hopefully be met with um, words of encouragement to keep on talking, keep on listening, and that that grassroots effort of Americans getting involved is, in my opinion, what will really raise the ability for reform to take place. Albert, what do you think? And this is, is this a moment where we could see bipartisan support leading to some major change? Or do you think that with the general election coming up, our country is just too divided? So here's something to think about. In, in early February, at the Super Bowl, President Trump ran a campaign ad touting his record on criminal justice reform, specifically to try to attract the black vote. Well, fast forward to today. So on paper, one could say, oh, okay, maybe this is something where Trump has seen the, the political value. This is an area where maybe he will push for some sort of bipartisan legislation. I think, unfortunately, that's not going to happen because I do think that he has dug himself into a more combative uh, position. What I will say is that I do think both parties are incentivized to pass something, whether it will be, I think your words were meaningful or not, Matt, is still uh, to be determined. But I think the silver lining, at least for me, is that Police forces in this country are not controlled at the federal level. They're controlled at the state and local level. And so we've already seen legislation, major legislation passed in New York State in terms of police reform. You alluded at the top of the show in terms of what's happening in Minneapolis. And a lot of those states, but especially those cities and municipalities, 
are controlled by Democrats. And I think that at the local level, the municipal level, that's where we're going to see a lot of reform. Uh, and thankfully, that's the place where, where it matters. So I'm really not looking to Washington for leadership on this. But I do think we're going to see seismic change uh, in the way that uh, policing happens in America because of change at the local level. It's a shame that Trump is sort of painting himself into a corner here. I feel like he has very few large pieces of legislation to be able to talk about in his campaign. Uh, this seems like it could be a grand opportunity for him to get a, a major piece of legislation under his belt to be able to champion. I think if that was the tack that Trump wanted to take, he would have given a unifying speech about coronavirus. He would have given a unifying speech about the protests. He would have. I feel like he had that opportunity, and I think there were the reports of his aides kind of encouraging to make some sort of presidential Oval Office address, and, and he didn't. And so the question is, maybe he's the guy we all know, which is Trump is an, an angry guy who is not comfortable about talking about race in America. Or maybe it was a conscious decision or an accident, but I think it's going to be pretty hard for him to reverse himself at this point. Yeah, I think this is pretty indicative of where he's going for November. I don't think he's seeking a unifying tone. I think he's seeking to divide and create a passionate core base rather than seeking to attract people from the left side of moderate. And I think Biden, in terms of strategy, needs to be going the other way, he needs to be extending a hand across the, across the aisle. Uh, we've seen a little bit of that already. I mean, we, we had my quote I mentioned earlier where he's uh, saying he wants traffic and fear and division, you know, taking these stances saying, I want to unify, Trump wants to divide. I think that's the, the sort of stance he's going to be taking and how he's going to try to represent himself for the general election. It's, it's really strange to me that, that the Trump administration is giving, or Donald Trump himself, President Trump, is giving... Vice President Biden a clear lane in going after that moderate vote. Um, I really haven't seen in the past few months any anything in the way of Donald Trump trying to communicate to moderates, people left of center, people as I mentioned before, those Rust Belt voters who who voted for Barack Obama twice and Donald Trump once. I really don't see that outreach and. He's just giving a lane to Joe Biden to continue to compete for those votes. So I think, you know, you might be onto something a little bit, Albert. I, you know, I don't necessarily agree that um, they have no strategy and that it's all desperation. But I do think that they're seeing that the strategy that they're trying to utilize is probably not going to be nearly as effective in 2020. I just want to add something there, there, Bob, because, you know, you talk about these uh, mythical Obama-Trump voters. If you, look at the, if you look at the numbers, and this is the New York Times poll, poll again, back in March and April, Joe Biden was losing to non-college educated voters by 30 points. Fast forward to May and June, he's only losing by 20 points. I mean, that's that's a huge shift. And so you've even had the Trump campaign doing ads in like working white working class areas in Ohio and Wisconsin. I mean, that's that's not somebody who is looking to expand their their base. It's somebody who's looking to 
preserve it. And I think it shows that Trump is in a very dangerous spot. I think just to play almost devil's advocate to myself, I think we just can't say that this is done and dusted at this point. I think we've seen with this pandemic that so much has changed. What if the economy suddenly starts rising? What if Joe Biden is, you know, the campaigning on stay at home and be afraid and don't worry if you lose your job and Trump is the one who is helping with a, a magical recovery? I mean, there's still a lot that can happen in the next few months. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And we really can't take anything for granted. And it's funny you mentioned the economy, the stock market, which, of course, is not the economy. But I like to think of it for calculus nerds out there as the first derivative of the economy. It measures potential for future growth, consensus potential for future growth. And that was rallying and rallying and rallying and rallying over the past two months. And then all of a sudden you get this May jobs report that came out last week where the consensus among most economists economists was that we'd lose about seven and a half million jobs over the course of the month of May. But we actually gained two and a half million jobs over the course of the month of May. That's a 10 million job swing. So there's arguments out there that it's could potentially be a fluke. But like you mentioned, we really can't predict this. Economists really have no idea what's going on right now. They've even said they've even, even said so themselves on uh, Kai Rizdal's Marketplace podcast that I'm a avid, avid listener of. So it's really, we're in this time where, like you said, yeah, the economy could start rising again. And we could find out down the road that lockdowns were completely ineffective. And then Joe Biden, with his campaign, stay home and don't worry if you lose your job, as you mentioned, that's going to look really bad in retrospect. So it's definitely not done and dusted. Yeah, there's still a lot of ways this could go. Um, I don't think polls right now are necessarily indicative. Uh, Trump has so much money to work with. And there are a lot of powerful people around him. I think he's got a lot of levers he can pull in order to get this election. And I think he has a, either he has a pretty good knowledge of his electorate or someone near him has a, has a pretty strong knowledge of what things to tweet to get his base excited. Uh, but again, we're clearly not seeing a, a push towards the center to try to pick up that area. Bob, how do you see these protests impacting the Republican Party long term? So... It's, it's really tough to say right now. The Republican Party is in a large, was in a large state of flux, trying to pick its new identity prior to the 2016 election. Um, and then, but as I mentioned before, the Republican Party is very quick to rally around a standard bearer. So I think that how this will shape the Republican Party really depends on whether or not President Trump wins the election in 2020. If he wins, then I would see these protests as having a very modest impact on the Republican Party. The Republican Party might be a, um, a little bit more keen to pull from the libertarian wing and libertarian ideas for police reform, such as ending qualified immunity, which is one, abolishing police unions, which is another, or at least severely curtailing their influence in the local community, um, and pull from those to craft bipartisan legislation and work towards that new common goal. If he loses, then the Republican Party is going to be looking for a brand new standard bearer. And when and when that seat is open, that's what it's going to get hard to predict. You have a lot of young people who 
believe in fiscal conservatism, but have been really off put by the Republican Party's brand over the past 12 years at this point, uh, basically since the end of George W. Bush's second term. The Republican Party did some soul searching, found Donald Trump. Um, and then the question is, is if Donald Trump wins the election, then I think that that will become more long lasting in the party. But if he doesn't, then I think they're going to be looking for a new standard bearer. And that is when I would predict that the younger wing of the party will start um, being showing itself and ha completely looking very different from the Republican Party we see today. I would say that if Joe Biden were to lose this election, uh, the party will go back to being relatively fractured, liberals and moderates separated. If he wins this election, then perhaps there's actually a rallying around him that happens. I would say with the Trump side, if Trump wins, that's sort of a validation of his taking up the call of these loud minorities of, of alt-right, far-right individuals. Uh, if he loses, then that might go the other way. That perhaps demonstrates that that isn't the best plan for achieving the presidency. It might lead to a diminishment of those voices' power. That's my hope, at least. Albert, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, on, and I'm glad you mentioned the Democratic side. I think on the Democratic side, if Joe Biden wins, we are going to see the generational divide that is occurring in the Democratic Party play out on the national stage. I think that if Joe Biden loses, all help is going to break loose in the Democratic Party. Because I think there will be a ton of people saying that if a moderate couldn't win in this environment, a moderate can never win. And as a result, we need somebody far more uh, progressive, somebody far more uh, Bernie Sanders. On the Republican side, I think if Trump wins, it'll be another four years of, of, of Trump, obviously. I think if he loses, I could definitely see, especially in this age of uh, government expanding to fight uh, the coronavirus and the economic impact of the coronavirus, uh, that the Republican Party maybe reverts to some of its small government roots, a la sort of Tea Party re reactionary, um, and potentially uh, also uh, back to some of its uh, foreign foreign policy uh, stances. You know, Trump really has made a huge uh, part of his reelection, at least before the killing of George Floyd, about blaming China for coronavirus and really setting up like a new, uh, not just a trade cold war, but just a general sort of uh, freeze in, in relations. And I think that could be another turn where this goes. This is a story we'll continue to cover over the next few weeks as it continues to evolve. And we'll continue to discuss its implications for the November elections. Before we close up, Albert, do you have any final words? Yeah, I mean, just back to what we were saying before about the, the history that we're living through. I think that, you know, I could just speak for myself, and I hope it's something that's going to reflect across the country, that people are looking at race in a, in a different way, and whether it's part of organizations or how they, that they are part of or the, the way that they lead their life, that they're going to be thinking about the disparities that exist in this country and, and wanting to be a part of the solution. And I think for all of us, this has been a, a wake-up call. And if, and if we were asleep, shame on us. Um, but I think America is awake. And I'm very cautiously optimistic that this is really going to make uh, 
this country a better place, not just for black and brown people, for but for all of us. Yeah, and I think in order for these changes to happen, people need to continue to be vocal. People need to not let this drop from their mind. This is not a story that we can just let go in a single news cycle. This needs to linger. There needs to be actual action. Absolutely. Bob, do you have any final words? Don't be afraid to listen to the protesters. Hear stories of black and brown people that might be different from your own, especially as it pertains to things in life that you're, where your experiences may differ. And if you're having these conversations with your close friends, tell them your thoughts as well. Try not to focus as much uh, with the loud voices on social media and trying to change the minds of strangers and name calling. But these are conversations that are going to likely develop over the course of the next few years. I think that Americans are going to become more comfortable with discussing their various experiences across the races in America and that we will be able to share our stories, empathize with people, and really shape our opinions and our thoughts as to how to approach these issues going forward. So take care. Listen first and foremost to the experiences of black and brown people. And then with your friends and family and people that you're close with and are comfortable with having these conversations with, don't be afraid to share your opinions and discuss. And it's really okay to be wrong. All of our worldviews about everything are wrong and it should be, we should always be seeking the actual truth and expanding our minds and having productive conversation. And if people aren't willing to have that productive conversation, then find some other people to be talking with, but don't be afraid to speak up and don't be afraid to listen because we're all in this together and we really need to hear each other to have positive reform. That's what this podcast is all about. Productive conversation listening, hashing out our viewpoints in a reasoned way that doesn't involve insults, that doesn't involve social media attacks. Shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you guys so much for doing this with me. I really (laughs) appreciate it. All right. Thank you listeners for listening into BAM Political Talk with Bob, Albert, and Matt. I'm your host, Matt Brown. Thanks, Matt. Thank you, Matt. Have a good night. Thank you.